A few months ago, I was on call overnight when I was paged about a woman who had been admitted the day prior for an upcoming procedure, and her anticoagulation with dabigatran had been held. She took dabigatran for atrial fibrillation, had no clinical history of stroke. The procedure was a paracentesis. The patient was in her usual state of health earlier the day before, and it was about midnight when I got called, and nursing staff had noticed that in the last half hour she was no longer following commands no longer interacting with the nursing staff or even moving. She had a forced gaze deviation to the left, and her right nasolabial fold was flattened. So, a pretty good story for an acute stroke. And if we were to localize it, a left middle cerebral artery occlusion, resulting in a right hemifacial and arm more than leg weakness, as well as that gaze preference toward the side of the lesion. Remember, that contralateral frontal eye field will now be overcoming the lesion frontal eye field on the left, and the eyes will be forcibly driven away from the normal side, toward the side of the lesion. Technically, she could have also had a brainstem infarction, involving the descending corticospinal fibers as they course through the pons, resulting in contralateral arm and leg weakness, with ipsilateral facial weakness. Because the paramedian pontine reticular formation is also located at this area of the brainstem, the eyes will not be able to look in the direction of the affected side of the pontine infarct, a lesion to the PPRF will drive your eyes away from that side. So you can imagine that our patient may have had a small stroke in the right inferior medial pons with weakness of the right face, the left hemibody, and a gaze preference toward the left, otherwise known as the foveal syndrome. Or maybe the patient didn't have a stroke. Maybe they had a toxic or metabolic encephalopathy, if you don't believe that she had true facial asymmetry. And now she was just unresponsive. Or she may be experiencing a complex partial seizure. Hard to know. So we got a head CT, as well as emergent neck vessel imaging and CT perfusion imaging. There wasn't any evidence of acute hemorrhage or any early infarct signs on the non-contrast head CT. There was an old right periventricular frontal lacoon, probably of no clinical consequence. It definitely wouldn't account for the right nasolabial fold flattening. The CTA showed a little bit of atherosclerotic disease, but no large vessel occlusion. And finally, the CTP showed some mild areas of delayed mean transit time in the right hemisphere, meaning slowed cerebral blood flow to these locations, suggestive of possible early multifocal infarct, but hardly conclusive, and definitely limited by the low resolution of a CT perfusion. So, what did we do? Well, she was within the window for IVTPA and had no other contraindications to systemic thrombolysis, Remember, she'd been off that dabigatran for 36 hours. So we gave her the IVTPA, and we monitored her closely. An MRI would later confirm multifocal cerebral infarctions, consistent with a cardioembolic source, her atrial fibrillation. Kind of what we were expecting, given the symptoms, the unimpressive CTA, and the results of that perfusion scan. But what I hadn't thought of throughout this case was why she was off dabigatran for the preceding 36 hours, why, if a patient needs anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation, is it okay to hold it for a day or two? Or is it safer to use an anticoagulant with a much shorter half-life, something like heparin, while you're waiting on the procedure? That way you can at least reduce the duration of interrupted anticoagulation. What's the right thing to do for these patients? The answer to that question in a minute, when our program continues. More than 35 million prescriptions for an oral anticoagulant are filled each year in the United States. That's one prescription for every 100 adults. 
For the sake of this show today, why don't we focus on patients with atrial fibrillation? Mike Rubenstein again, everybody. Sounds good, Mike. A large number of these prescriptions are for patients with atrial fibrillation to prevent stroke. Just because your patient has one medical problem, like AFib, it doesn't mean that they can't have another problem. Like a mouthful of nasty teeth which may need extracting. Among other problems. You see, patients with atrial fibrillation are just as likely as you or me to make dental appointments, to need colon cancer screening, or even break a bone. And these procedures can involve surgery. You'd think that this doesn't happen very frequently. It happens all the time. One in six patients taking a blood thinner will undergo an invasive procedure or surgery every year, putting them at risk of major bleeding, thromboembolism, and even death. Which is what we are here to talk about today. The balance between the risk of bleeding and the risk of thromboembolism when patients who are taking anticoagulation have to stop because of an invasive procedure. And just so we're clear, taking a strong blood thinner makes each of these procedures much, much riskier. So patients must not be under the influence of anticoagulation at the time of the procedure, or there can be horrible consequences. And, uh, we got a bleeder! Now, Mike, you've been practicing for a long time. So whenever your patients had to take an anticoagulant, that usually meant that they were taking warfarin. How long would you have to ask your patients to hold their anticoagulation before a procedure? Well, I usually tried to avoid answering the question, but as I remember from medical school and practicing my internship was that Coumadin or Warfarin has a 36-hour half-life, so I recall having to wait about five days. That seems like forever. It is a long time. So because it took so long to hold the anticoagulation, somebody eventually came up with this concept of bridging, or using a different anticoagulant like unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin two blood thinners that have drastically shorter half-lives than warfarin. And these drugs could provide extended anticoagulation coverage in the days surrounding a procedure. But would it be safer to bridge patients using these other anticoagulants, or safer to interrupt anticoagulation for only a few days during the perioperative period? And that's exactly the question, Mike. But before we answer it, I think we need to recognize a few key facts. Then I'll tell you what the experts tell a patient to do while their patient is waiting for their colon prep to work. The first fact is, anticoagulation is not a guarantee in preventing clots for patients with atrial fibrillation. Sure, warfarin does not prevent 100% of strokes due to atrial fibrillation. This was confirmed in the quite appropriately named Stroke Prevention in Atrial Fibrillation Study. From that multicenter trial of over 1,300 patients, patients with atrial fibrillation were essentially randomized to warfarin, to aspirin, or to placebo. Compared to taking placebo, aspirin users were at a 42% lower risk of the primary outcome, systemic thromboembolism, which is pretty good. But warfarin was better. Compared to placebo, warfarin users were at a 67% lower risk of systemic thromboembolism, which is also good, but not perfect. We should note here that the SPAF investigators observed a 5-7% annual rate of ischemic stroke in that placebo arm. So a 5-7% risk of stroke in patients with AFib, meaning that appropriately anticoagulated patients were still at an annual risk of 2 or so percent for ischemic stroke. Meaning 1 in 50 people will break through and have a stroke every year while anticoagulated. And these numbers are only slightly better for the novel anticoagulants. So the risk of stroke is small, on the order of 1-3% to 3% over a period of 365 days. What's the risk of stroke over just a few days? Say, those few days when you need your colon prepped. Here's fact number two, and I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. 
the risk of stroke over a few days is very, very small. An observational study of over a 1,000 patients was conducted in the early 2000s to specifically address this question. All patients were on warfarin, and over half were taking it for atrial fibrillation. But some patients also had prior strokes, mechanical valves, and 80% of these patients had their warfarin interrupted for five days or less. From that study, Garcia and colleagues observed a very low risk of arterial events, 0.6%, and a very low risk of stroke, about 0.4%, over that 30-day study, 1 in 227 people. So, for your average patient, the risk of stroke is probably so low over a short period that it won't make much of a difference if you interrupt their anticoagulation. That's correct. For most people. And this is where you start to think about the risk versus benefit. Preventing a few of the strokes in that 0.4% group won't really give you a lot of benefit. But it turns out, bridging comes at an extremely great risk. Fact number three. Bleeding is a major risk of surgery. Not surprising, but how much of a risk is it really? You can replace blood, but you can't replace brain. That's true. Pooled data indicate that the risk of any significant bleeding at the time of an invasive procedure is about 2.8%, meaning 1 in 36 surgerized patients. And that's if your patient's not being bridged. If your patient is bridged, that risk shoots up from 2.8% to nearly 12%, a 1 in 8 chance. But that's for any bleeding, right? What about major bleeding? So major bleeding events occur less frequently overall, but the risk of major bleeding is still greater with bridging than with no bridging. So according to this pooled data, it's about 3.5% versus about 1%. This means a nearly fourfold greater odds of any bleeding and of major bleeding as well, if you end up putting your patient on heparin for a couple of days around his or her procedure. All right, so a pretty decent risk of any hemorrhage or major hemorrhage so let's compare this risk to the risk of thromboembolism. In patients who aren't even bridged, but were previously on anticoagulation, the ratio of bleeding to thrombosis is 5 to 1, so the odds are already against you. And this gets worse when you start to bridge. When you're bridging these patients, that ratio goes from 5 to 1 to 13 to 1. But like I said earlier, you can replace blood, but not brain. You'd think that that's all you've got to worry about. But having to transfuse blood is enormously problematic when you don't have to. Let's consider these numbers. Major periprocedural bleeding is associated with a 10% in-hospital mortality rate. It prolongs hospitalization by about 20%, and it increases the overall hospitalization cost by several orders of magnitude. So bridging is bad for your average patient. Yeah, and in light of these data, you might expect that any provider would prefer to stop anticoagulation in those days surrounding a procedure. This is absolutely not the case. A number of observational cohort studies have determined that doctors regularly overestimate that risk of thromboembolism during this period, and they would rather bridge patients in order to prevent thrombosis. And they overestimate it by a lot, about a third of the time. So what is the consensus among experts? A systematic review from 2003 was published in JAMA Neurology, previously the archives, where the authors recommended patients be risk-stratified to receive temporary bridging therapy in the perioperative setting. This meant that patients should be bridged if they were at high risk of thrombosis, meaning more than 7% risk of annual stroke, say a patient who has AFib and a history of stroke. They don't have to be bridged, but could be considered for bridging if they're at a moderate risk of stroke, 4-7% annual risk, 
and they should absolutely not be bridged if they're at a low annual risk, less than 4%. Patients at low risk are those with AFib and basically nothing else, right? No history of thromboembolism, mechanical valves, etc. That's right. And I should also mention that since this 2003 review article, which really addressed patients on warfarin, experts have now expanded on this early recommendation. And I'll post a table about this on the blog, but basically bridging in patients taking warfarin for AFib is only recommended if you have a really high CHADS 2 VASC score, 5 or more points. We don't have time to get into it, but similar recommendations have been made by the American Heart Association for patients who are taking NOACs. High-risk stroke patients on NOACs, for instance, AFib with recurrent strokes, should be considered for bridging, but you're usually only holding the NOAC for a day or so, compared to warfarin for 5 or more days, and low-risk patients should just hold their anticoagulation. In preparing for this talk, I reviewed the 2015 BRIDGE trial, which I believe corroborates these recommendations. To date, it remains the only randomized trial that has evaluated the safety and efficacy of anticoagulant bridging. Tell me about it. The BRIDGE trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in which low-risk patients taking warfarin were bridged with low-molecular weight heparin for three days pre-op, then held 24 hours pre-op, and continued on low-molecular weight heparin for 5 to 10 days post-op before resuming the warfarin. High-risk patients were specifically excluded. Nobody was included if they had a prior stroke in the last 12 weeks, no mechanical valves, no bleeding complications. What they observed in 1,800 patients was that bridging was non-inferior to interrupted anticoagulation for preventing thromboembolism. So what was the difference in stroke between the two arms? Stroke rates were the same regardless of heparinization. In fact, the incidence of major bleeding nearly tripled, 3.2% versus 1.3% in the group who was bridged versus those who stopped anticoagulation entirely, and this was statistically significant. So risks of bleeding are certainly greater in these patients at lower risk of thromboembolism. But this trial doesn't inform us about bridging for patients who are at a high risk of thromboembolism. For instance, a patient who has a mechanical heart valve and prior strokes. So the PERI-OP2 trial is ongoing, and will be specifically targeting patients like this, those who may benefit from bridging therapy with dabigatran. But until these results are published, we're relying on the expert opinions and observational studies to determine if high-risk patients ought to be heparinized around the time of an invasive procedure. I think we've covered a lot of ground today, but let me try to summarize a few of the take-home points. Number one, know the indications for anticoagulation. This makes it a lot easier to discontinue a patient's anticoagulation if they shouldn't be on it in the first place. Number two, be sure other providers understand the bleeding risk associated with their procedures. 40 to 60% of oral anticoagulation interruptions are unnecessary. Number three, know when it is safe to resume anticoagulation. That patient of yours who went for the colonoscopy who didn't have a biopsy done might be able to safely restart their apixaban immediately. Number four, periprocedural thromboembolism is rare, as in one in 200 patients rare. Periprocedural bleeding, however, is incredibly common. Actually, 13 times more common than thromboembolism in patients who are bridged. I think that about sums it up. I hope that this has been a helpful review. It's definitely a controversial subject, even with this recent clinical trial data. 
Now, going back to the patient that we talked about at the beginning of the show, remember the lady I saw who had held her dibigatran for 36 hours prior to the paracentesis, the one who had a stroke, she definitely fell into that low-risk category for a perioperative stroke. I would have been more concerned if the treating team had decided to heparinize her before that para. Unfortunately, it was just one of those things that happens. And the risk of trying to prevent it from happening is certainly greater than the potential benefit. Like you said, Mike, it's 13 times greater. So I hope you'll take that away from this episode. Thanks so much for tuning into Brainwaves this week. As usual, Brainwaves is intended for medical education purposes only and should not be used for routine clinical care of patients. If you're choosing between interrupting or bridging a patient's anticoagulation for an upcoming procedure, you should read the literature yourself. I don't think it will hold up in court if you have to say, a podcast told me to give the patient heparin before her brain surgery. This week's episode was produced by Jim Siegler and myself, Mike Rubenstein. Music by Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevere, and Jason Shaw. That's all for this week. I'm Mike Rubenstein. Thanks for listening.